0: Olivia. Hi, Katie. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Have you heard of a writer called Ursula Bloom? Oh, I have. Really? No, nothing about her, but I've heard of her. Ah. She was, for many years, listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's most prolific female author. What? Really? Yeah. (laughs) She wrote 560 books. Holy, what? I know, plus kids plays. books. These have to be kids' books, no, right? No, they're, I think they're mostly like romance novels. Whoa. And those are just the books. She also wrote plays and poems and, which is relevant to today's episode, memoirs. Wow. Those are the people that give me a complex. I've accomplished nothing <laughs> with my life. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she, she once said that her goal was 10,000 words a day. Oh. So just crank them out. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. So, for our Christmas special today, I'd like to do something a little different and have our subject tell her story entirely in her own words. Ooh. I've unearthed some of Ursula Bloom's memoirs. She penned them long ago for a now long gone periodical called Warwickshire and Worcestershire Life. <laughs> She lived in England. Yeah, <laughs> as you know, I lived in England. And I lived in Warwickshire. Warwickshire, which is where I first discovered Ursula Bloom, because she lived in Warwickshire. Huh. But she lived in Warwickshire at the turn of the 20th century. She was born in 1892. Hmm. So her childhood memories of Christmas at that tail end of the Victorian era—oh, wonderful! Yeah, they are vivid and delightful. So, with the help of Professor of Literature Judy Ellsley, we're bringing her back for half an hour. Wonderful. <laughs> Merry Christmas. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of.
1: at the turn of the century was such fun. In those days children were children and grown-ups were grown-ups and it was pretty well impossible to get into a grown-up party if you came into that dreaded category known as being too young. Yuletide, or Christ's Mass, has gone through the centuries as the great feast of the year, and the little hamlets of Warwickshire kept it joyously in their own way, with mummers and parties of carollers who journeyed from house to house. Today their carols are the accepted ones. Once they were of the country, like the one the village men from Ilmington used to sing. In comes I, Old Mother Christmas, Welcome or welcome not, I hope old mother Christmas will ne'er be forgot. Privately each village competed one with another for the best set of carol singers. These singers would walk miles, often in dreadfully bad weather, and the owners of the big houses gave them pies and plum puddings or something in the box. There were the yellow oranges too and of course the good wishes. Sometimes there was wine, if the master of the house was generous, cooking sherry, if not. In the old days, the houses were decorated mostly with holly, which filled the windows so that it would show from the outside. Later, when mistletoe came in, it was considered most unlucky ever to take it down. It was said to preserve the house against fire. In the rectory at Witch Church, where I lived, my father was the rector, Our mistletoe stayed stuck up in an old broken lantern all the year round and uncommonly dusty it became. were the days when presents came from everywhere. Even the grocer gave you a gift with the delivery of the Christmas order. He also sent me some chocolate biscuits which were very welcome. The editor of the local newspaper gave a turkey for a year's contributions from my father and I would have said that we did fairly well. St. Thomas's Day the 21st of December was fixed for widows of the parishes to go Thomasing or mumping as it was known in Norfolk. Kindly folk in the big houses dispensed refreshments and many of the widows spent the night in a frosty ditch coming too. My father cycled to Stratford-on-Avon to bring back ten shillings worth of coppers for the carolers and a load of half-penny yellowish oranges for the children. Then we were properly prepared for the great day. In those days, one did not dispute the reality of an old man called Father Christmas. I remember this was just another of his very kindly acts. The time came in my childhood, as it does to all of us, when, in the sanctuary of the butler's pantry, I asked a chatty parlour-maid, Is Father Christmas really true? She gave me the equivalent of the horny eye, suspecting my motives probably. Then, with supreme caution, she said, Maybe he be, maybe he baint. but we just takes what he brings along of him and no one don't ask silly questions. Christmas meant a lot of work at the rectory, and much cogitation with the patron of the living, James Robert West of Alscott Park. Although Squire Roberts West was seldom there himself, his charming wife, of whom I was very fond, helped with the charities, and Christmas came top of the list. There was the day of what was known as the Gifts, when the local women went to collect their due. The gifts consisted of a pair of blankets or perhaps sheets. They might also have been the bundles, which contained yards of flannel and a honeycomb quilt or two pillow slips, bolster case and some yards of sheeting. Bread and meat were doled out at this festival, a loaf of bread for each member of the household over a year old, and also a pound of meat. Some of the very old people received coal, for our village was entitled to it, being one of the four on the Roberts West estate. We also had to cope with the Ayscough charity. At one time, the Ayscoughs had lived there and left to every widow and widower in the parish a certain income which was divided among them at Christmas. Many of them prayed for a bad November, which would perhaps remove a couple and mean more for those left. One always felt the god had been particularly unkind if one of them died immediately after Christmas. He ought to have done that afore, the others commented. At the rectory we decorated gaily and the first real excitement began on Christmas Eve when the footmen from Olscott Park arrived with our personal gifts. The parents got such dull things, strange-looking bottles, a hare, a brace of pheasants, or a turkey. The children, however, were most generously treated. The maids, too, had their thrill, for the gifts were bought by an extremely good-looking young footman, known affectionately among them as Cock Sparrow. He looked very handsome in the West uniform. On Christmas morning the children did not attend early service but got busy with their stockings. At 11 there was a big service at the church with a procession to Christians Awake. My father in his wild enthusiasm would have the choir walk with him singing around the church itself, stumbling about a frozen or muddy churchyard. We returned to a very ordinary lunch to be followed by the excitement of the Christmas tree. Then came the arranging of the dessert for the one enormous dinner of the year with myself prodding crackers with a small, fat finger and trying to get some idea of what might be inside them. All through this state dinner with this special table centre, a most hideous scarlet and silver thing that my mother had made especially for this night. The carol singers came and sang, and one was constantly rushing out with coppers and yellow oranges. My mother was usually in a frenzy, lest the children will catch their death. There were also parties given to the village as well as to us. Warwick Castles was a delightful one and it meant a ride in a hired fly, at vast cost we felt, in which we sat getting colder and colder, huddled in shawls and with the tin foot warmer chilling in the straw at our feet but how wonderful Warwick looked with its Christmas garlands and its quite enormous Christmas tree. All that was the goodness of the beautiful and adorable Lady Warwick who had so generous a heart that the estate has never quite forgotten it. Lady Warwick had that gift of beauty which made you think that the sunshine had come into the room as soon as she entered. Her son Maynard Greville was about my age and one of my friends. From the Christmas tree in the yellow drawing room, I was given a fairy doll, which at Christmas is a little girl's dream. My brother got a sailing yacht. Maynard had a humming top, but he took an instant dislike to it because it only played Christmas carols. I remember he had a row with his nanny, which shocked me. It was quite unprecedented to argue with one's nanny. Next morning, a man came round the castle selling, of all things, baby elephants. It sounds incredible, but at the turn of the century, anything could happen. Dancing bears frequently visited country houses, and there were hurdy-gurdiers which told your fortune. I must admit there was a certain sameness about the fortunes, for the lady would always marry a rich and handsome stranger, and a gentleman would wed a lady as beautiful as the morning. Like that, all were satisfied. The mahout who appeared with these particular baby elephants knew that Lady Warwick could never say no. She bought one. "'It's such a dear little thing to have around the place,' said she. I remember my father choking slightly and then saying, But what on earth will you do when it grows up? It stayed there quite a time and I saw it often. If you annoyed it, it just picked you up and put you down on the other side of the hedge. In the end, it was given to a zoo where it took children for rides at a handsome profit. "'I wish we'd thought of that for Warwick,' said her ladyship, a trifle sadly. (laughs) Boxing Day morning was also a big occasion. At 11 o'clock, the new brass band arrived, marching in and setting the echoes ringing. Hot cocoa and mince pies awaited them. They would be followed by the handbell ringers who came into the hall and stood there clanging out, hark the herald angels sing. More hot cocoa and more mince pies. was always a tremendous thrill in the kitchen where they all went to eat their refreshments. The thrill was increased because the skittish ones had mistletoe attached to their caps. After cold turkey for Boxing Day lunch we would walk to Scott Park to say thank you for our gifts. All the four Parsons families did that, armed with lanterns and often falling over browsing deer or sleeping cows as they came back after dark. Christmas has always been the time of year for ghost stories. I remember a kitchen maid bought me bread and milk in bed and stayed for an entertaining chat which I'm sure would have petrified my parents. She apparently knew every ghost in the neighbourhood and was only too happy to inform me about them. One of her most intriguing stories was about the ghost of Shakespeare which walked around the Guild Chapel at Stratford on Christmas night. I've never heard this story from anyone else, and don't believe it's true. But there came the awful moment when she met a ghost, a real one, so she said, and it fair made me shake. This was, of course, terrifying bedtime chatter for any child, and she was never sparing in her realism. How I ever got to sleep afterwards, I don't know. She met her real ghost, ever so frightening in Christmas week in the Preston Lane. This little byway runs down beside Alscott Park to the village of Prescott on Stour. It drops down to the river, crosses it, then one half of it turns left to the parish of Whitchurch where my father was rector and the other half was a dead-end road running to Preston itself. An old flailing barn stands at the corner. Here, apparently, in the dark, This girl met her ghost, and she thought it was some relation of the white lady of Alscott. I sat up in bed in rapt attention. The maid had been coming home from seeing her grandmother when she heard someone behind her. She turned sharply and looked into a pair of the most beautiful eyes she had ever seen. But the poor lady's face, she said, was as white as snow. Then the apparition turned and moved away. The maid was, of course, all of a shiver, and utterly horrified. I was very much afraid myself, though I was safely in bed with a nice hot brick wrapped in a duster at my feet. The story was not reserved only for the maid. My father found that half the village was scared stiff of that particular lane on a winter's night, declaring that the ghost was always there. One night, my father set forth with a friend, the French master from the army school at Stratford-on-Avon, to help him. It was he who actually came face to face with the wraith by the old flailing barn. He had turned and found himself staring into the lovely, lustrous eyes of a woman who was, by all accounts, not quite his height. Hearing him scream, my father went to his rescue and saw for himself the dead white face and the lovely eyes. He then noticed that she turned and ran away. He could hear her feet and fortunately recognised them as the feet of a deer escaped from Alscott Park. At this time of year, it seemed that the deer were always escaping and the darkness effectively hid their ears and antlers so that one looked into an unrecognisable face. The wretched animal in the lane on that particular night was making desperate efforts to get back into the park and being used to men instinctively followed human voices to seek help. It was terrifying for those who thought it was a ghost. It always happened at Christmas time, said my informant, who even when told the truth would not believe that it was something as harmless as a deer. For as she said, what she'd been and gone and seen had been no deer anyway, and she added, that all Scott Park's haunted. The same maid was the person who first told me of the white lady of Olscott whose habit was to come down the stairs unexpectedly, usually at Christmas. Apparently she was very well known indeed. The grandfather of the squire, a naval commander who was celebrating Christmas with the flowing bowl, once saw this lady coming down the stairs in the great hall. He was not afraid of her and picked up a riding whip and chased her up the stairs again. The next few Christmases were completely peaceful without her intrusions. Then it all began again. It appears that she never did any harm and apparently did not want anything except to make friends, which was something she was never able to do. As a small child, I was somewhat naturally, intensely interested in ghosts. One Christmas, my father took me to visit an old lady who was having her home decorated for the festive season. I've never seen lovelier holly. She had no mistletoe. But, said the old lady mysteriously, You always have to decorate with a piece of rosemary as well, for that keeps the ghosts away. I thought that pronouncement was very interesting, and to be on the safe side, I picked a piece of rosemary and took it up to my room at the rectory, just to make sure that I had insured myself against the occult. Warwick Castle was said to have ghosts galore. I remember a footman asking me if I hadn't heard the ghosts screaming in the night, which I most certainly had not. The peacocks screeching on the battlements at dawn had awakened me, but I knew what was making that appalling din, for my father had warned me of them. The very old people used to say that the castle was haunted by a black dog. It had started when an old retainer there, a woman called Moll Bloxham, had sold milk and butter from the castle stores for her personal gain. One Christmas she overdid this and then the Earl of Warwick, getting wind of it, had stopped her source of supply. Furiously angry, she vowed she would get them haunted. She apparently succeeded and returned in the form of a black dog, In the end, the clergy were called in to exorcise the ghost with a bell, book, and candle, but for a time they were entirely unsuccessful. Then, one day it was said that a huge black dog sprang from Caesar's Tower into the river below, and so ended the ghost story. Although one rather expected Christmas ghosts in this part of the world during that delightful era, I must admit that, after going to some enthralling party and driving back ten miles through the dank darkness of those Warwickshire lanes, sitting inside a hired fly which smelt of moth walls, it could be a little horrifying if one had been talking of the supernatural. One wondered if one dare ask Mother if the stories were really true. The new century came when I was still very small. You've got to remember this, my father said, and so that you can remember it, you will be woken up and brought down to see the new century come in. It sounded exciting. I was awakened, warned not to cry, and taken to see the beginning of the century. Believe me, the valley looked exactly the same as it had always done. Nothing happened and it was not very interesting Christmas though is a wonderful time it asserts itself it dresses up in tinsel and glitter It brings gifts and cards and a certain thrill which even now gets me every time. It is that lovely break in the dark heart of the winter and even if all the worst weather still lies beyond it, we don't think of it at Christmas time. Perhaps its joy lies in the fact that it is entirely different from any other time of year and we ourselves become entirely different to meet it.
0: Special thanks to Judy Elsley for this reading of the Christmas Memoirs of Ursula Bloom. Music was recorded by Fiddlesticks from their album Cold Fusion and the Georgia Boy Choir from their album God Bless Us Everyone. What's Her Name podcast wishes you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you for listening.